Hello and welcome to A Rock and Roll Rabbit Hole, where I'll be digging through my vinyl collection of about 500 records and my tiny brain of about 500 remaining brain cells and taking a light-hearted, laid-back and positive fanboys look at my favourite songs and bits of songs that fall within a different set theme every episode. Choosing from any song part that gives me joy as a listener or a slight Norwegian wood as a musician. It won't be a countdown, but I will leave my favourite choice for last. This is just a bit of chilled, unnecessary fun that hopefully inspires someone to buy a record, listen to an old favourite album, support a musician, and check out all this amazing shit that has formed the soundtrack of my life. As a lot of people like to share their opinions these days, please let me know if you think that I have missed anything in my record collection that I know and that I like by sending me an email at I won't ever check this email address at gofuckyourself.cock and I'll get back to you as soon as I can. But seriously, if you do have any suggestions, you can hit me at suggestions at arockandrollrabbithole.com. I'd love to hear from you and check out some new music, some old music, great YouTube interviews, anything rocking and entertaining, I love it all. And if you dig what I'm doing, feel free to tell a friend or two and subscribe to the podcast. You can also visit the website www.arockandrollrabbithole.com for Spotify playlists of each episode, past episodes and some other golden magic. Also, you can find me on Twitter, Instagram and Facebook, A Rock and Roll Rabbit Hole Podcast. Thank you so much for listening and here we go. Before we dive into it, I just want to thank everyone for listening again. And we've now officially had more downloads in America than Australia. So thanks, America, and shame on you, Australia. So please rate and review the podcast if you listen on the Apple app. And just a quick thank you to Alex Hughes and Glenn Turtle Howard and Cameron Church for some nice vibes this week. So we're up to about 38 countries now in total. And I have a free sticker and guitar pick pack for the first 100 people that review the podcast and then hit me up on Instagram. I'll post it to you for free anywhere in the world. Even if you've shared the podcast with some friends, let me know and I'll sticker you up. Thanks again. Cheers. Episode four, drugs. Now, uppers, downers, purple hearts, hash, shit, heavy shit, dust, chasing the dragon, monkey on your back, ferret down your trousers. How far do you go with your thrill seeking? So many songs mention drugs in them, so I thought I would do a deep dive on drugs. I started listing songs with booze in them too under the drug banner, but that will have to wait for another episode as there are so many great booze songs too. I couldn't go past this first one as it's a great rocking tune from a great band and is basically just a shopping list of drugs that build up to a one word chorus. Queens of the Stone Age, feel good hit of the summer. What's it, what's it like for you guys? Has it, been, has it been six drugs and rock and roll thus far? Six drugs? There's been more than that. You could see it loud, you know, I could have marijuana 
Next up is an Aussie song that also has a bit of a drug shopping list vibe to it. The John Butler Trio, I Used to Get High. I used to get high for a living, believing everything that I saw on my TV. I used to get high for a living, eating all the bullshit food that they sold me. I used to get high for a living, thinking that my destiny was out of my control. I used to get high for a living, there's lots of different reasons and I tell you so. Supersized, large, five, big, map, go, 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 one man, big, get poison. Speed, weed, ecstasy, LSD, man, it bother me, cause we're all on something. Caffeine, cigarettes, alcohol, you know I'm calling out the walls, trying to get my fix. Prozac, ADD, tablets, smoke, smack, now you know I am trying to take school. I used to get high for a living, believing everything that I saw on my TV. I used to get high for a living, eating all the bullshit food that they sold me. These next few songs also mention cocaine or hint at cocaine use. Cocaine is a hell of a drug. <laughs> In a 2005 interview, the songwriter explained that, that this song was originally titled Blue, and the lyrics were something along the lines of. I lived my life in blue and there's nothing anyone can do. He went on to decree that they were fucking awful. Every time we play it, it's brilliant. When he sings the first line every night, it's kind of, you know, you're at a fucking gig there. That's why we always play it early on. It's like, fucking kick off here now. Nobody, but nobody at the record company had any say in what we've done. Now, usually when that happens, it's kind of like, all right, see the ball guy, he's got to go, mm -hmm. right? And uh, there's not been all this shit about drugs because now you're working for the fucking man and you're a commodity. We forget this shit. We just documenting where we were at and we were doing shit loads of fucking drugs at the time. And that was shocking, you know, like the, the drugs is like having a cup of tea quote. That, they have, there was TV crews outside my house for three days after that. It was like, he should be kicked out of Oasis the same as Brian Harvey was kicked out of E17. <laughs> <laughs> really? Well, that'd be fun, wouldn't it? You know, the bonehead going in, yeah, we've had a meeting and uh, it's just, you're a fucking liability. <laughs> and you've got to fucking go. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like Brian yeah. Harvey. But, yeah, I'm sorry, <laughs> but you've got to fucking go. And, um, but now, Inject crack up your fucking arsehole and washing yeah, up liquid in into it. You know, you know what I mean? Back in the back in the day, we were we were like we were like public enemy number one too. I never went to. I never had a breakdown. I know you know most people have breakdowns, don't they? And go and see a psychiatrist and all that. We just got stuck into more drugs. When you knock drugs on the head or stop doing drugs, it was a very... It was a black day. It was a black day. It was a black day. Yeah. I don't know what I was thinking of. <laughs> but it, it seemed a very pragmatic decision. Well, I, you know, to be well, to be quite honest, um, vanity more than anything mm. took over there. Where it's like you can't be doing drugs when you're approaching your mid thirties and getting in. And I've got, you know, I couldn't do it now. I've got kids anyway. Do you know what I mean? Mm. Um, but it ain't. There comes a point where it's not cool anymore, and I just couldn't be bothered anymore. And I wanted a change of, I wanted a change of friends, and I wanted a change of scene, and. That was it. You know, I didn't wean myself off it. A little bit less, a little bit less, a little bit less. It was like, no, no more, that's it. It was going right up and then just stopped. Mm. I've got the will of an Iron Man. On the Definitely Maybe tour, I'd met this girl in America. When we would meet, she would say, hey, what's the story, Morning Glory? Right? Now, I don't, I don't know what the fucking hell it ever, it ever meant. 
And I was talking to some American journalists yesterday, and I said, what does it mean? They're like, well, I've never heard it before. And I was like, well, I thought it was like an American, like top of the morning to you, you know what I mean? Something like that. Again, I thought, what's the story, morning, morning? And uh, I shoehorned it into that tune. Why, why it's ended up as the title of the album, I don't know. I, I do remember writing that fucking line, all your dreams are made when you change the mirror and the razor blade in this room. I've, I've listened to it today feeling like, I sound like I was just in the zone there where it was just like everything that was I was writing was meaningful. The gigs uh, on that Morning Glory tour used to start with the helicopter sound. They were like spine tingling fucking moments. Because as soon as it came on, I don't know, yeah, you can feel like, you know, something's about to happen. one is an obvious choice. It was actually written by J.J. Cale but made famous by Eric Clapton. The lyrics are about drug addiction, something Clapton knew quite well. As he explained in his autobiography Clapton, when he recorded this song, he had kicked a serious heroin habit but was filling his body with cocaine and booze. His attitude at the time was that if he could manage his addiction and quit at any time. When he finally did get off drugs and alcohol, he had to learn how to make his music while sober which was a big transition for him because he thought everything sounded very rough to him when not under the influence. Cocaine, Eric Clapton.
For the promo for this next song, the band staged a bicycle race around Wimbledon Stadium in England. 65 professional models were hired to race nude with special effects hiding the nudity in the original video and photos. The band rented 65 bicycles for the race. When the rental company found out what the bikes were used for, they refused to take the bikes back unless the band paid for new seats. This song just mentions cocaine in it once, but I'm up to episode four and haven't used one Queen song and they're probably one of my absolute favorite bands, so I'm popping this one in. Bicycle Race, Queen. This next one is a great story song written by TJ Arnold and is a reworking of a traditional song called Little Sadie. The song is a tale of a man, Willie Lee, who murders his unfaithful girlfriend while under the influence of whiskey and cocaine. He flees to Mexico and works as a musician to fund his continued drug use. Cocaine Blues, Johnny Cash. Early one morning while making the rounds I took a shot of cocaine and I shot my woman down I went right home and I went to bed I stuck at 11.44 beneath my head Got up next morning and I grabbed that gun Took a shot of cocaine and away I run Made a good run but I run too slow took me down in Juarez, Mexico. Here's Johnny Cash talking about his demons. Um, I had a transformation in that I was on mood-altering drugs, addictive drugs. Um, following surgery in Nashville, I agreed to go to Betty Ford Center to learn about my problem. And I learned that it's a genetic disease of chemical dependency. And there are one out of four or five people out there who have that disease if they use mood-altering drugs uh, there, there, there are three alternatives, death, incarceration, or prison. Johnny, why do you think in your life, apart from what you've just said, that you, so successful in our eyes, might have found your way to drugs? What went wrong in your life? What went wrong? I was just like everybody else. I, I took drugs to get up, and I took drugs to go down and make me feel better. Uh, and. People say, why are so many entertainers on drugs or sports figures? There are no more entertainers or sports figures in general than there are people in other walks of life. It's a, it's a problem that covers the whole country, and it's a very severe problem right now. Nirvana, lithium. I'm so lonely, that's okay. Shave my head, and I'm not sad. And just maybe I'm too blame for all I've heard I'm not sure I'm 
from the Beach Boys talking about drugs. Let me ask you a bit about the break that you took in between uh, recording and, and performing for a while. I mean, there were two long breaks in your music career, both due, as you said, to your struggle with drug addiction and mental illness. In 1976, you did an interview with TV personality Mike Douglas. Uh, let me play you a bit of this interview. Let's take a listen to this. I don't. I say that drugs are not needed by a person of talent. That I, I'm. God blessed me with some talent. I never have utilized grass or any drugs or cocaine to actually, for a stepping stone to write or create music, or create even a thought. I uh, have been taught the difference by my psychiatrist, thank God, of a natural high and a drug high. Are you off now of, of drugs and? Oh, I'm off cocaine, thank God. I mean. Uh, I, I did my dose of LSD, it shattered my mind, and I, you know, came back, thank God, in I don't know how many pieces. That's Brian Wilson in 1976 on The Mike Douglas Show after his first decade-long absence from the music industry. You're saying there that you didn't take drugs to help you write songs, but you were certainly doing a lot of drugs when you were making some of your Well, I, when pushing. I took the LSD, you know, it, it, it uh, was an eight-hour pill. It started at seven in the evening. And by around 2.30 or 3 in the morning, I went to the piano and wrote some of California Girls. So the LSD did have an upside, you know, obviously helped me write, write songs. So uh, drugs can, I mean, Sonny Rollins was here not that long ago, right. the great jazz saxophonist, talking about heroin use. And I said to him, I asked him, you know, does it, do you think it can help fuel creativity? And he said, you know, I wouldn't recommend people do it, but yeah, it can help creativity. Would you say that drugs helped creativity in your case? Very much so, yeah. Marijuana helped me write pet sounds, and, and so I mean it, it's 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 kind of a double-edged sword, right? Because right. on the one hand, it helped you do what you did, and on the other hand, it led you to an absence in music for right, a long time. Right. This is Ronnie Wood and Paul McCartney. We're going through the, the chronology a little bit now, coming a little bit more up to date with a choice from the Beach Boys from Paul. Mm. Yeah, um, you know, Brian Wilson sort of proved himself to be like a really 
amazing composer. Yeah. And I was into you know, chords and harmonies and stuff at that time. And we ended up, it's kind of like a rivalry. Yeah. We'd put a song out and Brian would hear it and he'd do one, which is nice. It's like me and John. You know, you kind of try and top each other all the time. But um, he eventually came out with this God Only Knows. That was Pet Sounds time, right? On, on Pet Sounds, mm. yeah. I just think it's a great song, melody, harmonies, words, yeah. you know. Yeah, he had a wonderful feel, a very bluesy, I think he is. Yeah. You know, he's got a lot of soul. It's, it's a great song, I love it, you know. It's just one of my, it's, it's my favorite Beach Boy song. And then you chase it when it doesn't work anymore. And I chased it for years and years. Could Hemingway have written like that if he was sober? Or could Hendrix have played like that if he didn't experiment with hallucinogenics? Well, probably not. I used that one for years and years. It never occurred to me that all those people are dead. They got further and further away from reality. I ended up uh, in, in, in bad shape. I had hit bottom. And I knew that, that I was done and that uh, I would probably die if I kept going. That was Joe Walsh from the Eagles talking about his dark days. Here's Life in the Fast Lane. Absolutely love this guy and this song is one of my favorites from him it is rumored to be about his fight with coke and booze and his cleaning up just before his tragic death in a helicopter crash in 1990 the first verse starts out referencing the paranoia and fear surrounding addiction the last verse talks about solutions and making amends well I've cleaned up my act yeah, quite, a bit. Mm-hmm. quite a bit um, no more drinking no more drugs you know 
some people some people may be able to do one or the other. I won't I won't get into that, you know. Some people will be able to drink right, you know. But uh, I can't do that. I've went too far with it. And uh, I started instead of just partying or instead of just drinking to have a drink, I had I had to go off and be obsessive with it. And uh, it just just doesn't work for me. I wish a lot of people that really that can't handle it would realize that they couldn't, and it'll, it'll happen in time, you know. But it's, it's, it's something that's a lot harder to deal with than a lot of people realize, you know. And it took me a long time to realize that I knew I couldn't stop, but I have to do something about that and stop, you know. Well, what made you realize suddenly that you got to take control of this? Well, I fell apart. Oh, yeah? Yeah, I fell apart. And there's no, play. well, yeah, the, and, and that, well, like I said, I was still playing gigs, but I could, it was physically and emotionally and spiritually just bankrupt. It's really difficult to control that kind of habit. What kind of support system do you have around you? I went through treatment in Atlanta, Georgia, and, uh, and I've got a, a step program, a 12-step program that I live by now, and uh, all the people in that program, all my support. Plus, I have, I have uh, the bass player, Tommy Shannon. He's also in the program, and uh, so, is, so is my drum tech and guitar tech, and we, we help each other out. A lot of people associate drug and alcohol abuse with show business. Do you think it really is an occupational hazard? It's a myth, yeah? but that myth is overwhelming. Yeah. Some of the YouTube audio in this episode is a bit shite in quality but I am saving up to buy YouTube and then I'll insist that all content, especially stuff that I'm interested in, is of excellent quality. If you would like to help me, you can donate at GoFund something else to complain about at poop forward slash fundwit. Tightrope, Stevie Ray Vaughan and Double Trouble. Spotlight on my face There was love all around me But I was looking for revenge Thank God it never found me Would it be in the end Walking the tightrope Stepping on the friend Walking the tightrope Was a shame in a sin Walking the tightrope Between wrong and right
After listing a bunch of cocaine songs there, I feel we can now safely gateway from cocaine to heroin. In this next song, the singer wrote it about his friend and guitar player in the band. During rehearsals, the guitarist was so high on heroin he couldn't even hold up his guitar. So he was fired and given 50 bucks for rehab and a plane ticket back to LA. Upon reaching LA, he overdosed and died. The singer said, I felt responsible, but really there was nothing I could do. I mean, he was responsible, but I thought I was for a long time. Danny just wasn't happy. That was Neil Young talking about his crazy horse bandmate, Danny Witten. And the song is Needle and the Damage Done. I caught you knocking at my cellar door. I love you, baby, can I have some more? Ooh, the damage done. I hit the city and I lost my band. I watched the needle take another man. Gone. Davis. A lot of your colleagues died from drugs, from heroin. You had a heroin habit. You kicked it cold turkey and went on. How did you stop? I looked in the mirror one day and I just stopped. I went out to my father's place. He had a couple hundred acres of land. And I went out and uh, he had two compartments like this for his gas. So I went in one of them and locked the door. And I stayed there for about, about five days before I could get up and walk. And that was it. That did it? Every day does it, you know. I'm still a drug addict if I, if I use drugs. It's like being an alcoholic. But every day it gets better, every day, every day. Then gradually it leaves your head. The songwriter of the next tune traces his addictive personality back to 1965 when his stepdad urged him to take a hit from a joint and a pull from a bottle of Jack Daniels while on vacation in Mexico. He was only six years old at the time. Here, the songwriter, Nicky Six, talks about his rock bottom, a heroin overdose, and drugs in the music industry. Whitney 
Winston passed away, I think it was a good time to look at uh, enablers. You know, so there's a lot of people around the artists. There's managers, there's agents, there's road managers, there's crew, there's, there's family members. So when you see a person you know, heading towards that addiction, um, a lot of people don't want to stop the money train. And that's where you hear about a lot of the tragedies in, in rock and roll and jazz and other kinds of music as well. I mean, it, and I'm, I'm really happy to be a survivor of, of heroin addiction and alcoholism. I was an addict, a heroin addict for exactly one year. And um, you know, my heart stopped for two minutes. And I came back, I went home and I shot up again and overdosed again. I woke up the next day and I, I kind of had like a spiritual awakening. That's, that's the only reason, I, the only way I can explain it because I woke up and it was the first time I didn't want to do drugs. And was it out of fear because you came that close to Yeah, it just, it just changed my perspective. And it was at that time I, I said, you know, I want to turn my life around and do something good with this, this uh, horrible information. Motley Crue, Dancing on Glass. This next tune took place in April 1970 at Olympic Studios in London. The lyrics to the song are notably dark and feature the line, I'll be in my basement room with a needle and spoon. Dead flowers, rolling stones. Keith Richards chatting about how drugs snuck into his life. Drugs, uh, you know, they seep into your life. Uh, you're not really aware of it at first. They, my, my first uh, 
feeling was about that. I mean, I'm working with these guys that are, you know, old, and I'm on, on the road. And we're 19, 20 years old, and it's taken its toll on us, you know, the road work. You know, and these guys are older, and they're all together, and uh, you say, how do you do this, man? What's the secret? You know, well, you take one of these, you smoke a little of that. <laughs> ah, <laughs> the penny drops, you know. But at the same time, it, it was all backstage and sort of uh, secret. Getting in is easy, getting out is difficult. Uh, you know, it took me a while. And don't recommend it really to anybody, uh, except that what happens is what happens. It seems perfectly natural at the time, and nobody was arguing, you know. So I went ahead. <laughs> um, I really don't really say much more about drugs because I could give you a lecture all night about the. <laughs> You know about the quality and uh, <laughs> but anyway, all my news is out of date. Telling you <laughs> the snorting of your father's ashes, which I, it is true. Mm. You did in fact do it. I ingested my ancestor. Yes, uh, mainly because I'd had his box of ashes around for about five, six years. Uh huh. And it was sitting on the shelf, you know, in this little black box with a number on it, you know, and, and somehow I couldn't part with him, you know, I mean, I couldn't toss him to the winds mm -hmm. uh, or do some ceremony, and it, he would have cringed at that. My father was like, oh, yeah, you know, and I, you know, all he had said to me is that he didn't want to take up any ground on the face of this earth for his bones to molder. Right. He wanted uh, you know, the earth to be used. He, you know, better to grow a bunch of potatoes than take up that amount of land. Mm -hmm. Yeah, he thought cemeteries were stupid. You know, especially when they get bigger and bigger and bigger. And just, you know, my father's attitude was, well, we carry on like this. Uh, you know, everywhere will be a graveyard. Mm. Right. So he wanted to be cremated, which I did. And then I decided, after about five years, all I was going to do was plant a good old English oak tree in the garden. Mm -hmm. And that I had you know, put him in there to make it grow firm and strong. But as I took the lid off the box, fine bits of my dad flew onto the table. You know, like powder, you know. And I can't, honestly, I could not resist. I just scooped him up there, took out a straw, and said, see you, Dad. And I did a little line of him. Yeah, I did that. And, uh, and the rest of him is around this oak tree, which is growing incredibly well. I always loved this tune, which was a minor hit in the 90s. This song is about the lead singer's girlfriend and also his brother overdosing on heroin. He actually overheard a policeman saying, it's just another overdose about his brother's death, a lyric that he used in the song. Heroin girl, ever clear.
The next band had booked four shows in LA, opening for the Stones in October 1989 for $500,000 US a show. The band's manager, Alan Niven, was so worried about the singer not turning up, as the band was in a bit of a drug mess at the time, that he enlisted the help of the LAPD. He told the police, I want you to immediately send two no-questions-asked uniforms to this address. Get the occupants out of that condominium in any which way you can and bring them right here, in handcuffs if necessary. Within minutes, a pair of police officers were banging on the singer's front door and delivering him to the venue. It's pretty obvious who that singer is, and here he is the same night calling out members of the band on stage for drug use. On the same run of shows, the opening band Living Colour had called out Axl Rose for his use of the N-word in the GNR song, One in a Million, which apparently made Axl furious, and this was his rant before they started their set. Slash himself made the next announcement at the next gig. Just now getting hit to what drugs are all about. A lot of fucking 
think the tension's been brought to this band about, you know, some of the excesses that we get into. And, uh, you know, a lot of that press is bullshit and a lot of stuff is true, but it's a lot of unnecessary time and attention brought to something that's basically in the long run just ain't that happening. I mean, it's a lot of fun when you get into it and you have a good time, but when it comes down to life and people's futures and what existing is supposed to be all about, it just ain't that fucking happening, you know? Axel had stayed in his dressing room until Slash had made the speech, which apparently had briefly changed the vibe for better within the band. The whole situation, though, in Duff's words, was the incident that officially rang the bell for the end of an era within Guns N' Roses, mainly due to the fact that Axel aired the dirty laundry in private and the early band vibe of Us Against the World was over. Mr. Brownstone, Guns N' Roses. Here's a drug-related story as told by drummer Stephen Adler as to why he and Axel disappeared from the Dirty Harry movie. The Dirty Harry movie? Well, in the scene, in the cemetery scene, there's the five of us. And then the next scene is you see Slash and Izzy and, and um, Duff shooting a harpoon through a window of this boat. Well, the reason me and Axel weren't there was because I met some stripper that night and she put this brown powder in my beer, 
Oh. And next thing I know, I woke up in the hospital, charcoal coming out of every hole in my body. Oh, my God. And Axel was holding my hand, crying, because he thought I was going to die. So wow. he has my eternal love, always, forever. But wow. if you ever watch the movie, that's why me and Axel aren't in it. He's the great Ozzy Osbourne clearing up once and for all any rumours about his sobriety. Are you sober now? No, no, yeah. One of the many great Bon Scott era songs. This one is about a girl and a drug. Gone shooting, ACDC. a bunch of heroin songs, I think we are ready to level out a bit now with some pot sounds. This sunny and soulful track from 1966 is generally thought of being an upbeat love song, but according to the songwriter, the love object in this particular instance is weed. He says that the song was one I wrote when I was first being introduced to pot. I'd been a rather straight working class lad, but then we started to get into pot. It seemed to me to be quite uplifting. It didn't seem to have too many side effects like alcohol or some of the other stuff like pills, which I pretty much kept off. I didn't have a hard time with it, and to me, it was mind-expanding, literally mind-expanding. You don't think about things like that after a pot of tea, but you might after some pot. John, how was the trip over? Did you all uh, get bored on the flight, or do you have things that uh, usually keep you entertained that, that you all were doing? Got to get you into my life, the Beatles. The next pick is the lead single from this legend's 1999 solo album and is clearly about the devil's lettuce. 
The lyrics made the folks at MTV uneasy, but rather than ban the song's video, they simply ran an edited version that played the word joint backwards. Here's the singer chatting about booze and weed and the song. Stop drinking for five years. Till tonight. <laughs> you know I wasn't a drink in this whole place either. You know? I shouldn't go, really go into the drinking thing. Go into it. Well, let's talk about the drinking thing for a second. You know, there's a lot of people that don't drink anymore. And uh, myself, I, I try not to drink much anymore because I have really, you know, woken up in strange places <laughs> and found myself, in, you know, engaging in behavior that really wasn't me. And I, I stopped this drinking thing. And uh, so if I go to a party, you know, I'm not really, I don't really do anything, uh, anything else, you know. Um, but now and then, every now and then, once in, this is a blue moon tonight. It is. We're recording this on a blue moon, and every every blue moon or so, I might I might have just a toke on somebody's cigarette. Not that I mean, no, it's not. There's really nothing. There's no way to live your life. But. Um, it's okay way to live your life, I guess. But it's, it's not to be advised. I'm not going to say it's good or bad. But I wrote this song a while back, and uh, I, I was trying to do this character in the song who was kind of down and going, you know, and looking for some company. And, and instead of having him say, well, let's, let's have another beer, or let's, you know, they always have that in the song. So I thought this guy should, should roll another joint. And, uh, and the strangest thing has happened since then. I mean, I wrote this song really not thinking that it was controversial in any way. And, you know, I nearly left the song off the album till the very end and we put it on. And, and imagine my surprise when this song comes on television and they say, let's roll another news. <laughs> Which sounded worse to me than joint, you know? <laughs> because I don't know if you've ever had a news. <laughs> but it sounds really wicked. <laughs> so, I don't know, maybe you can't have that on this show, I don't know. <laughs> so maybe every time I say joint, it's gonna go news. You don't know how it feels, Tom Petty. Let me get to the point 
went to Amsterdam together. Yes, it was a... Uh... How did the world not explode? I don't understand. <laughs> it, was, it was secretive the way it happened. He had a concert out there on 420, and I had a concert out there on 419, which is the annual holiday for what we do. <laughs> and uh, we just happened to meet up just out there. Just happened to meet? Yeah, and then once we met up, we was in, in, I was in his hotel room. We was playing dominoes and enjoying life. Yeah, sure, sure, sure. Yeah, exactly. It, yeah. And, <laughs> enjoying life. Yeah. yeah, 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 yeah. So after enjoying life, we... we... <laughs> <laughs> what did you do after you enjoyed life? We developed a hunger. <laughs> <laughs> you, got, so, you got a little hungry, yeah. yeah. so naturally, we wanted to go to Kentucky Fried Chicken, which is one of our favorite <laughs> spots. His and mine. Yeah. So we pull up in the drive-thru, you know... You we and sit... Willie Nelson pull up in the drive-thru. We're in the, we the drive-thru. <laughs> That's the thing I've ever heard in my lifetime. So we pull up and we order in the chicken, they give it to us, and when they give it to us, they hand us the big bucket. We take the top off and we both put our hand in at the same time, and we grab the same piece of chicken at the same damn time. <laughs> and I said, you know what, Willie? That's yours. Go ahead, take that, dog. <laughs> That's how nice you are. That's a moment right there. Oh, my gosh. Yes, sir. You and Willie Nelson Graham for the same piece of chicken. Come on, man. You can't make that up. That's history, uh, baby. Listen here as the singer tells a story about the next song and how it came together. I think it was like around the time that I was making Continuum. I was having myself a little sex and uh, listening to Miles Davis in a silent way. And I was naked and I was playing the guitar. Post-coital. Mid Miles Davis in a silent way. And I think I was tinkering around with a guitar and, uh, and I went, Who says I can't get stoned? In the shades alone. Da da ba 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 ba. Who says I can't get stoned? And it was lovely. And I'd always played it for the last three years straight to my friend and roommate and front of house engineer Chad Franskoviak. And I would say, check this out. Who says I can't get stoned? He would say, you need to do that. You need to do that. And I went, I'm nervous about the stoned thing. <laughs> and then I always had this other thing that went, it's been a long night in New York City. It's been a long night in Baton Rouge. Because we knew a girl who was from Baton Rouge, Chad Knight, same time. I don't remember you looking any better. But then again, I don't remember you. And that's all I had. And I had these two pieces, and I thought they were very strange. They were very unlike one another. The verse and the chorus are very much unlike one, uh, uh, one another. And but when they went together, it made this really mystifying sort of concoction. And, uh, and I played it for Steve Jordan. Steve Jordan, by the way, ladies and gentlemen, Steve Jordan. <laughs> worked on uh, Continuum and Battle Studies. We were sort of one of those modes like, well, what do we got? Like, and, and I have like this little, think about songwriters, they always have more songs than they're playing you. There's always another song behind another song behind another song. We had sort of played everything on the record that I had and I went, well, here's one. And it was in the performing the song forum that I faked the arrangement of the song. 
And I had one of those brilliant moments of being a songwriter where you just know you're going to finish it up that night. And it was a certain moment in the song. Songwriters have a certain moment in the song they know they've done something. And the entire song would be a joke if I hadn't sung It's Been a Long Time Since 22. And when I sang It's Been a Long Time Since 22, the whole song made sense. And I sort of got up, sort of choked up because it has been a long time since 22. And, and, and I, I do mean to be the same person I've always tried to be. Who says I can't get stoned? Call up a girl that I used to know. Fake love for an hour or so. Who says I can't get stoned? Who says I can't take time? Meet all the girls in the county line. Wait on fate to send a sign. Who says I can't take time? It's been a long night in New York City. It's been a long night in Austin, too. Next up is a song from a Melbourne band that are perfect for a rock and roll rabbit hole. Great musicianship, great tunes, and one of the best rock voices on the planet, Rusty Brown. Nicotine by Electric Mary. the last of the drug songs for now but before i get to my favorite in a minute i want to include in every episode a funny crazy or interesting story about one of the songs or artists and today's is another story about guns and roses let's have a listen to duff telling a great story about how the band bonded on their first ever tour to do a gig in seattle it was axel and izzy we started playing together it wasn't slash and steven at first tracy guns and this guy rob gardner were, okay. were in guns 
first. Okay. Right. And we booked, Izzy and I booked this kind of punk rock tour because I was used to doing this, this West Coast. I knew all the club guys and, and the crash houses where we could crash. It was all done. We had a guy who would drive our gear. We got a U-Haul trailer. And, um, and that, that was kind of the like shit or get off the pot moment for, for guns and the history, our history. Um, Tracy and, and Rob were just like, we had never done like a tour and like didn't, these are punk rock tours then we're not like exactly knew we were going to sleep that night you didn't know exactly how you were going to eat but I'd done it so many times and Izzy and Axe were like okay let's go we got gigs booked let's go and and um, those two guys um, Rob and, and Tracy just like basically last minute like, we're, we're not going to do it that just sounds too you know uh, winging it we're, like, we're not we're not canceling this tour man and that's when uh we got together with slash and steven but more than that that the, when we got together with those two guys the, it was the th first three chords we played it was like oh that was the best move we've ever made and and we were off to the races went and did that tour well we only made the first gig which was in seattle a car broke down in bakersfield so we hitchhiked the five of us to seattle 1,100 miles we hitchhiked, 1,000 miles. We were eating onions out of the onion field and like Bakersfield and uh, we had $37, all right, between us. So we went to the truck stop and there was a trucker there. Guy was tweaking out of his mind on crank. He said, uh, said we need a ride. We're going to Seattle. He goes, I'm going to Medford. How much money you got? We got 37 bucks. All right, give me your 37 bucks and I'll take you to Medford. And the guy was, we all got in the cab, you know, like the sleeper, like our guitars. And uh, the guy did, he got us to, he dropped us off at one point in, in Sacramento. It was like 110 degrees, man. And we're at the, like the Capitol building on the lawn. There's water fountains and stuff. And the trucker takes off. We're like, he's dumping us here, man. But he, I think he just went to go get more crank. And sure enough, he came back around, got us, like in an hour or two. Got us to Medford. Um, we hitchhiked. We got one ride from Medford on the I-5, you know. Uh, this Mexican guy with his little pickup. But we all got in the back and the, it was rubbing the tires. And he's like, I'm sorry, you guys. It took us like five miles. His back tires were smoking. I'm sorry, you guys. I, it's going to ruin my truck. I wish you the best of luck. And then these, um, so we're out there, you know, now we're north of Medford somewhere. Uh, and uh, we're hitchhiking. And it, uh, this this pickup truck, a real one, like a regular size pickup truck with a cab in the back. These two women in their 30s. So they were old to us. They said, you guys, where are you going? We're going to Seattle. He said, well, we're going to Portland. We can take you that far. But at this point, I'm like, okay, I'm thinking I can call a friend in Seattle, come down to Portland to get us. And we get in the back of these, this girl's pickup. It was like that corrugated back you know, cab. But they had a window up to the front. And they said, are you guys? They said, look, we passed you guys. And then we turned around and came back and got you because we used to hitchhike and we were hippie girls. Nobody would pick us up because of the way we looked. And we just did that to you. We passed you. And then we talked and we said, we just passed people that were like us. We passed them for the same reason because they don't look, you know, 
They look different. And they, they're, they're really sweet. I, I, I wish I would have remembered their names because they, they um, you guys hungry? No, we're fucking starving. Okay. We're going to stop and get some gas. We'll get you guys some sandwiches. Just come on in the store with us. They got us some beer. You know, it was just like angels picked us up. And at that gas station, I called collect to my friend Donner in Seattle. I said, man, we're on a mission, dude. We're going to check in since Bakersfield. Can you come get us in Portland? He's like, I'll do that. And not only that, I'll throw you guys a party when you get to Seattle like nobody's ever seen. So we get to Portland. There's Donner. He picks us up. These women dropped us off. Good luck, guys. You know, never got the trucker's name. He was so tweaked out on, on meth. I don't know. Um, uh, we got to Seattle. There was like this house party, like beyond house parties. There was barbecue and, you know, booze and uh, chicks, everything. And uh, it's like, I've got to welcome my new friends, you know, to Seattle. Like, this is our band. Especially after that hitchhiking trip, we were a band. Yeah. Like, don't fuck around with us. It's over. Yeah. yeah. Um, the gig we played in Seattle, we, our gear didn't make it because the car broke down. So we borrowed the Fastbacks gear, who we were opening up for, a band I used to play in, play drums in. Um, there was nobody there. We sucked. Um, but it didn't matter at that point. Didn't matter. What songs were you doing then? Do you remember? I know you remember. You're a fucking genius. Well, we were doing, like, we had Jungle. We had those no songs. shit. Yeah, we had, and we were playing, um, like, we have a new box set that came out last year, and it has all these Sound City demos we did, and that kind of gives you a good indication of what we were playing, like Heartbreak Hotel by Elvis, like the speeded up version, Reckless Life off of our first EP, um, Nice Boys Don't Play Rock and Roll by Rose Tattoo. We were playing covers, but we had our own songs. We had a good grip by that point, like eight or nine songs. We played it, probably played Don't Cry, Jungle. Of course, now in Seattle, they, like 2,000 people said they've been at that gig. That first gig we played, where we, where there was only actually three people there. <laughs> we sucked. I'm glad people weren't at that show. But that was... Uh, and we got back to L.A. We couldn't do the rest of the tour because the guy who had the car with the U-Haul and our gear, the car never got fixed. He was trying to get it fixed. Our hopes were he'd get it fixed. Meet us in Seattle. We'd be able to do Portland, Eugene, Sacramento, San Francisco. But we never did. But we made Seattle. And we made our way back. And we did our a show somewhere when we got back. Because we had an L.A. gig at the end of the this tour and it might have been the troubadour it might have been opening on a monday night for two other bands you know that's where you start there and we we did it man we came back like changed people i think and a, and a united band let's take a quick break and quickly recap the magic before i get to my favorite drug song Cool. 
piece of cake. I took a shot of cocaine and I shot my woman down. Who says I can't get stoned? Let's roll another joint. You didn't run, you didn't lie, you knew I wanted just to hold you. So here's the last of them and my first choice for a few reasons, mainly because its lyrics are very clear about what it's about and has one of the greatest chorus lines ever which can be applied to any part of my life. My favourite drug, rock and roll rabbit hole song, Given Up by The Darkness. People get to my age, 28, and say, um, no, re no regrets, you know? Whereas I think, um, I think so many regrets that you might as well just not think about them. <laughs> it's how you learn, it's through regret and shame as well. A lot of my decision-making was regrettable. But, you know, now, I think it's been a few years since I've made a mistake. That was the great man, Justin David Hawkins. How did I get myself straight? What made me decide to get straight at this point? <clears throat> um, it wasn't something where it's been going on for a long time. Um, I always really uh, believed that I was very aware of where I was at. Uh, with my assorted addictions, you know, so I felt very in control of it in one hand, 
not not to the point where I could just quit anytime I wanted, but I was just very aware of it all throughout my my using the whole period that I've been using. Um, and then I started to get sort of you know tired of certain aspects of it. I think um, um, being reliant on something on a substance in order to be able to get up and you know and do anything and to be able to deal with people and to be able to feel comfortable in any given situation to have to be loaded um, was sort of a crutch that I didn't necessarily believe in I thought it made me <clears throat> basically a weaker person I'm so committed and dedicated to my guitar and to music that as soon as as uh, the drugs would start to overshadow that, I would have the presence of mind to be able to quit. And sometimes I would quit when we were off the road mostly, because that's when I would, well, I would start up when we were off the road, and then as soon as we would have to go on tour, I would know it would be time to clean up, and I would stay clean for two years, three years. Then we get off the road, I get bored, and start a whole long habit that sometimes would last for like two, three years. And uh, at one point, I was just, I really hit sort of a, that bottom that a lot of people hit before they realize that they need to get clean. I had a situation with alcohol, which was always the, uh, it was, um, the thing that I would substitute for the for the dope was I'd start drinking heavily, and I felt that that was acceptable. <laughs> and, uh, I, I, and I drank harder than, you know, pretty much anybody that I knew. And then finally, um, I had a situation where I had alcohol poisoning and it just about killed me. I've been sober for a year now, I just had my year birthday. So, so uh, somewhere leading up to that point, I decided that I was gonna, I had a lot of issues at home, a lot of issues with my band and this and that and the other, and I'd quit drinking altogether. And I had a set date to go into rehab and just get my head together. Just sort of surrendered to the whole concept of letting somebody else tell me a few things about uh, what they'd gone through and how that related to what I've been going through and so on. It was complicated, but not really that complicated. I just needed to sort of chill out and um, be in a place where my 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 body was was void of all chemicals and then just be able to take a step back and look at it from a different perspective. Picture yourself in a boat on a river. It never was and nobody believes me. I even saw uh, some famous star introducing, I've forgotten who it was, introducing a Lennon McCartney show. And uh, it was Mel Torme mm. saying about how Lucy in the Sky with Diamonds is about LSD. This is the truth. My son came home with a drawing and said, showed me this strange looking woman flying around. I said, what is it? He said, it's Lucy in the Sky with Diamonds. And I thought, that's beautiful. I immediately wrote a song about it. Uh -huh. The song had gone out, the whole album had been published, and somebody noticed that, that the letters spelt out LSD. And I had no idea about it. And of course, after that, I was checking all the songs to see what the, the letters spelled out. Yeah. They didn't spell out anything, none of the others. And uh, it wasn't about that at all, you know. Thank you so much for listening and thanks to Rob Dean at You Beginners Ruck Studios for the podcast music and Paddy Cummings at Fingerprint Audio for web and tech help and Simon Russell at Deep Switch Studios for additional tech help and Matt the Wombat Murderer O'Donnell for proof listening. 
And as mentioned at the start, if you do want to tell me what I did wrong, could do better or got wrong in this free podcast that took me a few full days to put together, you can send me an email at I don't ever check this email, nor do I really care about your opinion at pleasegofuckyourself.cockgoblin forward slash yep dot poop and I'll get back to you as soon as I can. But seriously, if you do have any suggestions, you can hit me at suggestions at arockandrollrabbithole.com or Facebook, Twitter and Instagram, a rock and roll rabbit hole podcast. I'd love to hear from you and check out some new music, some old music, some great YouTube interviews, anything rocking and entertaining. I love it all. And if I like it, I'll play it and give you a shout out on a future episode. If you dig what I'm doing, feel free to tell a friend or two and subscribe and rate the podcast on your Apple podcast app on your phone and Spotify. You can also visit the website, arockandrollrabbithole.com for Spotify playlists of each episode, past episodes and some other golden magic. And just a reminder, if you do rate the podcast on the iTunes app, hit me up for a sticker and pic on Instagram and I'll get one out to you. Cheers. To end the podcast, I'm going to add, when I can, an example of the topic that I enjoy from a lesser-known band who have had less than 10,000 hits on Spotify or YouTube. This segment is called Sub 10,000, and today features a band from Melbourne called Bug Dust with a song that would have been at home in episode one's building intros. Taken from their album, Welcome to the City of the Snakes, here's Bug Dust with 60 Days of Nights. Thanks again. See ya.
Stage. Make it perfectly clear. Never mind who you thought I was. I'm Rick James, bitch. <laughs> 